Classical music is vibrant, alive, and ever-changing. It's then and it's now. It's filled with the creativity and spirit of artists from all backgrounds and experiences. And it's as much in Carol Okoye Uba's dance as it is Beethoven's Fifth. Noteworthy stories by WDAV Classical Public Radio celebrate the rich diversity of classical music's past, present, and future, and they're hosted by me, Loki Karuna. Check out this week's Noteworthy Artists and catch up on past episodes at noteworthyclassical.org. Another opus of the Triloquy Podcast. I'm Loki Karuna. Appreciate you tuning in here once again. Shout out to all of the returning and longtime listeners. I couldn't and wouldn't be here without you. And thanks so much for continuing to support this show and its overall mission. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy Podcast, Triloquy is a show built to decolonize classical music. Each week I come here to the mic to share my thoughts on some of the latest happenings in the world of so-called classical music. I offer a recent conversation with folks who are working in the field and doing their best to make changes in the arts. And I offer a weekly Triloquy at the end, my own personal true and real take on uh, ways to move forward in the work of shifting classical music away from this predominantly white narrative that it seems to have a lot of trouble escaping, huh? at least seeming to, right? <laughs> For more information on Triloquy, to check out past opuses and to donate, hop over to the website. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G. This week, I'm extremely excited to share my recent conversation with Laura Colgate, one of the co-founders of the Boulanger Initiative. More on her and that organization here in a bit. I'm also going to speak to something I'm seeing in the orchestral field as it relates to new music. This one will, this one will be for the composers. Uh, so be sure to stick around for that. But for right now, I want to shine a light on the United States Supreme Court. Yes, specifically one of uh, their recent decisions that I thought wouldn't impact me and my work. But I don't know. It's a decision that is indeed seeping into my day to day. And I wanted to share a little bit before I jump in. uh, Shout out to New York City. Me and Del came here this week to look at our apartment and to attend the funeral of a Buddhist friend of mine. Rest in peace to Kevin Atkins. Um, And I'll probably say more about him next week because that funeral was really profound. I'll I'll circle back around to that. But anyway, for this week, uh, if for some reason the news didn't make it to you, the Supreme Court of the so-called United States of America ended the legal precedent of affirmative action at colleges and universities. Uh, I'm going to read from NPR. It says, in a decision divided along ideological lines, the sixth justice conservative supermajority invalidated admissions programs at Harvard and the University of North Carolina. The decision reverses decades of precedent held over the years by narrow Supreme Court majorities that included Republican-appointed justices. It ends the ability of colleges and universities, both public and private, to do what most say they still need to do, which is consider race as one of many factors in deciding which of the qualified applicants is to be admitted. Uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, uh, who's been a longtime critic of affirmative action, wrote in the decision uh, saying that the nation's colleges and universities must be colorblind uh, in criteria of admission. So there's something 
that I know uh, that I've addressed here on Triloquy before that I need to underscore once again, because I feel like people hear the word colorblind as it relates to human beings and hear something good or something positive. Um, I'm going to speak to my own lived experience, and so that's the one I got. But uh, I know that many people, many of you can relate in some way. So being black is a core part of my existence and and where a person chooses to stack their race or their gender or whatever as it relates to what they see as the most significant aspect of their life. That's up to them. Both of those things are true. Both of those things can be true. I want to make sure that I'm making those two ideas clear. Understanding the significance of race to and on my life doesn't invalidate more profound aspects or traits that I carry and that you carry as well. For example, if someone were to just ask me what I consider the most significant trait that I carry, I would probably say human being or maybe even bodhisattva. Uh, I, I understand the nuance um, and potential problem in centering, centering your idea, uh, identity around a, a single physical trait. Like that is a thing. I think that's something that people of color and otherwise need to be uh, mindful of. But also, we all live in a country whose foundation is anti-blackness. I feel like that's a key fact to understand if you want to engage the topic of race in any way. It's something that many of the nation's conservatives refuse to see, as we're seeing here with the Supreme Court. And I think it informs decisions like this striking down of affirmative action. So considering the history of the nation and the ways in which that history manifests in various ways today. I think it would be foolish for me to pretend that my blackness is insignificant to my lived reality, considering the fact that there are other things, again, like human being or bodhisattva that I see even higher. So I want to hear um, a Supreme Court justice, uh, you know, talk about that or really address that. When I hear someone from the Supreme Court talk about colorblind criteria what he's actually doing is erasing me from his perspective. He's not erasing color or prejudice connected to color. He's erasing lived experiences, you know, people as individuals as they've lived and experienced their lives. Um, you know, I can go over to gender. I'm not a woman. Uh, I've never been a woman, but I feel confident uh, in saying that conversations like these also relate to gender. When you consider the reality of our patriarchal world, you can't say that a person's gender doesn't play a significant role in their lived realities, despite a person not being only that. You know, these ideas have to be engaged when you're talking about recruitment and admissions. There are real life factors related to gender and related to race that play a role in a person's ability or inability to apply for a program, to qualify for uh, a college uh, program or um, or degree field. Um, and of course, those things play a role in even wanting to apply to these various things and opportunities in the first place. And what's in the backdrop of all of this for me is that the data shows across the board that white women were the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action in the first place. So Chief Justice Roberts pointing directly to race is the reason why he believes affirmative action should go away and is extremely telling. I would say anyway, with this precedent, I'm, I'm getting there as far as the arts. So with this precedent being set, there are a number of nonprofit organizations that are considering what it might mean to move forward with demographic based programs and initiatives. Uh, and when it comes to nonprofit arts organizations in particular, there are many of us that really center equity in the work. I think the idea is that no one wants to be sued. Uh, people aren't 
foreground and the opportunity to get into some good trouble in this capitalist society. Nonprofits built to support composers, built to support uh, diversity in music, you know, school education. This is something that, you know, they have to think about that we all have to think about. I'm really seeing people, um, you know, I, I toe the line here because I can say, well, we need to be ready for any and everything. But if I really consider the role of an organization and the individuals that, you know, these nonprofit arts organizations are built to support, you know, I'm beginning to think that it's a fair argument to con consider uh, these implications and at least have the conversations. It's it's really a tough thing. So many other organizations and institutions that I engage personally, you know, are in this exact work. I mentioned Laura Colgate uh, is going to come on the show here in a few minutes. Um, their mission statement reads, the, Bolog the Boulanger Initiative advocates for women and all gender marginalized composers. Okay. That is something that is very clear and something that could be challenged with this new precedent set. Let's go over to one of the more famous organizations out there. Yes, of course, Sphinx. Uh, here's some of the language from their website. It says, focus on increasing representation of Black and Latinx artists in classical music and recognizing excellence. Sphinx programs uh, serve beginner students to seasoned classical professionals, as well as cultural entrepreneurs and administrators. So, you know, again, there's that bit of equity that's there in intentionally naming the ways in which race uh, in these cases and gender when it comes to the Boulanger Initiative, how those things are applied to address an issue uh, in our field. Um, of course, if I'm involved with an organization, equity is going to be centered. And I'm very proud to name that 95% of the composers I supported in the past year come from historically marginalized communities in orchestral music. And that counts for race and gender. But again, the question is, is that <laughs> too high to stay out of the line of fire? Well, one of the you know many organizations out there built on the foundation of equitable outcomes be made an example of and, and get the rest of everybody running or changing their missions or you know their approaches. Um, do you think we should all pull back on what we've been doing or rephrase our mission statements and, uh, I don't know, be colorblind as our highest court is encouraging us to be? Hmm. I really do want to know uh, what y'all think about this one, because I fear that, you know, an arts organization will indeed be made an example out of, you know, we have the issue with the uh, the so-called gay cake. I don't know if y'all remember that, you know, and this may very well be something that's coming down the pipeline. People are out here, you know, making peanuts, trying to feed themselves and keep their families in order and support artists and this, uh, you know, capitalist system. And, you know, if we're trying to do this with the intention of making positive impact for marginalized people, why should that not be something that is? To me, that's just common sense. But, you know, things are coming down that might challenge that. Um, and really, let's just not forget the history of these laws and lawmaking bodies in general. You know, we can't always just go by what's legal. Um, I often ask people, would you be the person to risk going to jail by breaking the racist laws? You know, if you happen to live in the antebellum South or in the Jim Crow South, would you have adhered to, you know, what the law said and just kept it there? That's something that we need to think about. That's my question to myself and all the people out here considering a retreat or a pullback from equity as an intentional named public aspect of our work and of our arts organizations, um, and even beyond the arts as well. I'm trying to be very careful here because this conversation is getting real for 
uh, me and my work, but I wanted to make sure that y'all were at least thinking uh, about this. The Supreme Court is doing its best to really quell some great work by some great organizations, arts orgs and otherwise. And as, you know, arts professionals and arts aficionados even, we you know, had better not pretend that this issue is never going to touch us. It's something that I hope y'all will think about and, um, you know, keep, keep vigilant on, especially considering this presidential run. They got Ron DeSantis down there talking about slaves benefited, uh, enslaved people benefited from slavery. It's getting weird out here. And, uh, I guess we'll just see, but that's what I got for this week. Uh, I think it's time for us to get into my conversation with Lara. Again, uh, Lara Colgate is one of the founders of the Boulanger Initiative, which is an organization that works to promote, support, and platform women composers and other composers who are gender marginalized. Uh, so we talk about the organization's foundation. We talk about Lara's uh, background in music and uh, what she thinks the road forward looks like for all of us in this business of decolonizing classical music and much, much more. Uh, so to get us into this conversation, I wanted to highlight the music of one of the composers that this organization is named after. Uh, so Nadia Boulanger was a, a really, really incredible composer. She wrote some really incredible music, but also taught many of the 20th century's biggest names, folks that we all know, Philip Glass, um, even Quincy Jones, if you can believe it. Um, so Nadia Boulanger's sister, Lily Boulanger, died really young, but she still managed to leave behind some great music as well, including uh, a work called Du Matin Printemps, or uh, On a Spring Morning. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed this small excerpt of it as performed by the Seattle Symphony, and hope you enjoy my conversation with Laura Colgate of the Boulanger Initiative. <laughs> changes and the way we think changes and awareness really has has changed um but i think we always have to go back to to who started these movements and well the first actual recorded mm -hmm. knowledge that we have right um and and learn from them we're never starting from scratch um and it's in my um experience we've never gotten to to where any one person has tried to get or what any movement has tried to get so we're always having to to learn from historical movements and um and these kinds of things and and try to, to sort of put them together and, and merge them to figure out you know the next new answer based on where society is now and the conversations that we're having yeah, considering the historic nature of so many of these conversations, how, you know, none of us are starting from scratch, as you said, how do you keep the faith? 
I mean, our our foremothers weren't able to solve the problems. I'm sure we won't solve the problems. Maybe the next generation won't. How do you hang on to doing the work and doing the work in a way that is pointed toward actual measurable progress? I the the whole reason that I started this this work and and um, co-founded Boulanger Initiative, there was always a real balance between the level of frustration and the level of inspiration. Mm. Going back and and listening to the music and performing the music and going back to to why we're doing this because there's so much great music out there that's not known and not heard and not performed and not recorded. And and every time I I get a little bit too much of the frustration, I always try to go back to the inspiration and, and really hone down on that. Yeah, a balance between the two, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I definitely want to talk about uh, the Boulanger Initiative and uh, some of its current initiatives, but a little about you first. What's your musical background? How did you get into this world in the first place? My older brother, he's four years older. I was playing cello when I was still a fetus, when I was in the womb. <laughs> and so I, I essentially went to every one of his lessons from the time he started playing cello. And um, I started singing all of his songs before I started speaking. My parents knew that they had to get an instrument in my hand from an early age. And I started piano and violin when I was four years old. Um, I was very lucky. Um, in Memphis, Tennessee had a, a great Suzuki program. So I started traditional Suzuki and um, realized during youth orchestra that I really loved playing an orchestra. So I started focusing more on violin and the piano. And, and I've, um, when I was nine years old, I knew that that was what I wanted to do with my life, that I, I had to eat and breathe music every day, that it was my calling. With, uh, with cello being a part of your foundation, I'm sure, you know, the story of uh, Jacqueline Dupre is, is one that you're very familiar with uh, <laughs> among many. So it's sort of, uh, sort of a sidestep conversation back into diversity. I actually forgot that you're from Memphis. You know, it, it seems like being from Memphis, um, it, it kind of makes conversations about diversity a little silly sometimes because when I was coming up, there was no such thing as a predominantly white space, you know, in a in a city like Memphis. Do, do you do you have a similar thought or or experiences and those sorts of conversations considering your Memphis connection? A little bit, but I went to all of these all girl schools okay. growing up, so I I was never around the male counterparts and. And <laughs> never had to deal with that in schools when I was younger. Um, but yeah, growing up in, in Memphis was a, a special sort of um, experience, especially things like youth orchestra um, and being able to to see different parts of Memphis come together in one space and um, and growing up with with that. I moved to um, Cleveland as a young artist when I was 16. And I uh, was kind of dumbfounded at the lack of representation in youth orchestra when I got there. Hmm. So, it's, so it sounds like that was the moment because going to an all girls school, you know, it doesn't seem like gender parity would be a, a conversation or at least not something that would be front of mind. But entering that youth orchestra space is when you realize there was an issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 
it's specifically going to higher education. Once I entered Cleveland Institute of Music, um, it started popping up more and more in my head. There's so many aspects of gender diversity within the arts to be explored when it comes to uh, composers, when it comes to programming, people on stage, who's on the podium. I wonder if uh, this realization that you experienced was pointed in one of those specific directions, or was it just across the board, uh, something that you that you saw? It's the, the real impetus came when uh, I, I was in a professional string quartet uh, for a number of years, and it, it was an all-female string quartet, and we realized at some point that there wasn't an all-female string quartet um, that all had doctorates, mm. and we went into a doctorate program at University of Maryland together at the residency there and made that sort of our goal, that we were going to become that first um, first quartet of all women to have doctorates. and. Um, I actually went through a, a spinal injury and ended up not being able to play for a long time. And actually, I didn't know if I would ever play again, but I had gotten through the coursework of my doctorate and um, I'd gotten to the point where I could start my thesis, my dissertation. And I, I knew that I wanted to focus on women composers, but because I didn't know if I would play again, I went into the the world of writing and research and the world, the wide world of historical books and what exists and what doesn't um, became the forefront for me, um, really delving in, finding such a, an abundant wealth of music that I had never been exposed to. And I had never gotten to play because you're required to play things in your undergrad degree and your master's and your and competitions for string quartets and all of this. You don't get to choose, right? You're told what you're going to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as I became aware how much incredible music was out there, it wasn't an option anymore it was you know i had to do something about yep. it yep without sounding like i'm trying to virtue signal or or anything the fact of the matter is it's it's happenstance but i'm proud to say when i entered undergrad at the university of memphis my very first paper on a composer was on hildegard von bingen i just remember thinking who are some of the historical women who I can write about. And and that's sort of how that started for me. I wonder if you remember who were some of the first women uh, who you discovered or learned about by opening up a textbook or an encyclopedia. Um, Anyone who had an already familiar name. So you could always, and usually they have their own little box or paragraph. Mm -hmm. So that, that chapter on Robert Schumann, there's like a little box on Clara Schumann or Felix Mendelssohn, there was a little paragraph on Fanny Mendelssohn. Um, and, you, you know, you only heard about them in context of their male relationship counterparts. Right. Um, you, they never got their own story. Hildegard is a, a special case, though, right? I mean, especially going back that far and the fact that we still have so much of, of that material from her and it was actually recorded is astounding. And I think it's safe to say that uh, Lily and Nadia Boulanger are contextualized within their work. I I can't think of men whose legacies they're approximated to. I I wonder why um, those two women 
uh, are women that you think uh, are important for people to to know about? You didn't name your organization after them, after all. Yeah. Um, there's certainly, you know, two two paragons of classical music who still aren't performed or given recognition, do recognition to. And, and I, I mean, I, I can't name anybody who had more of a legacy on the field than Nadia Boulanger and the number of people that she touched throughout her life and the, the immense difference that she made to classical music overall. But between the two of them, I think the fact that they covered so many different components of, of breaking the glass um, and breaking down barriers um, and between the two of them, how much they accomplished. And, you know, Lily only being 24 when she died, how far she got. Obviously, she had a lot of, you know, family resources and um, connections and, and that kind of thing. But that shows you what was capable, right? Um, it that period of time in history and um, what the argument we hear all the time is women aren't as good. We don't play their music because it's not deserving. It's not worthy. I guarantee you those people do not know Lily Boulanger's works very well if they are saying that. Yeah, when we when we talk about Lily and especially Nadia Boulanger, I personally think about Nadia the teacher a little bit more than I think about Nadia the composer. Is that problematic? Should we be recontextualizing Nadia Boulanger as not just a teacher, but a composer of great works? She did it to herself, actually, in her own lifetime. She made a, a very um, conscious decision to move into the educator's realm. Um, and I, I think it was partly because of how much Lily had done um, at a young age and how incredible her works were. Um, and it, Nadia had such a a, um, a distinct voice when it came to educating. And I think that she recognized that she didn't have the level of skill that she wanted as a composer. So from Lily and Nadia Boulanger to the Boulanger Initiative. And first of all, uh, congratulations on five years. Uh, I, I wonder if you'll talk about uh, the birth of the Boulanger Initiative and what uh, what what the journey has looked like for you so far over these past five years? Yeah, it's it's been a fast five years and a very long five years at the same time. <laughs> um, you know, Joy Leilani Garbett and I co-founded um, just over five years ago. We turned five two days ago, and um, we had both been working on doctoral dissertations on women composers, and I had never yet been able to have an in-depth conversation about specific women composers, about, you know, at large, the conversation um, and the, the struggles and the barriers in classical music that need to, to be overcome. And to be able to have that conversation with her, it started as a conversation of, let's start a concert series. Let's just, just start there and do that. And, and every time we talked, it turned into, okay, nobody's, really addressing the problem of the education pipeline and hmm. uh, nobody's really doing anything about getting unpublished works engraved and nobody's and going into every single variable um, and they all you know play in together 
So figuring out that there there wasn't a sort of hub for all of this to get done. There's you know great grassroots organizations and individuals doing works in specific areas, but there was no place to bring all of that together in one place. And I honestly didn't think that we would get this far in five years. Um, the you know the number of programs that we've been able to put out and um, the really the I think the difference that we've been able to make and see in the industry um, specifically in awareness I think awareness has come such a long way in the last five years when you know at the end of every year I go through and try to get my my 10 favorite albums of the year and that kind of list and five years ago that it was a struggle it was actually you know you didn't necessarily have that many to choose from and now there's just there's so many record recordings coming out and and getting to go through that list at the end of every year and listen to everything is is just it's a completely different process than it was five years ago have you had to engage much pushback over the over the tenure of uh, of your work with the Boulanger Initiative? I, I can picture in my mind people saying, "What do you mean? We have Jennifer Higdon, who's one of the biggest names. We have Jesse Montgomery, who's who's one of the biggest names. Do you, do you have to deal with, with that sort of dialogue much?" Yes, um, it's usually more specified to different areas. And it's, you know, having the the oversight over the entire industry and saying, okay, well, yes, and, you know, we have these incredible composers who still have unpublished works that are tied up in estates or, you know, pieces that we still haven't been able to get our hands on. And, um, and we know that they're de- deserving composers, but there just hasn't been the, the attention to that kind of thing. So being able to make those arguments on a flip side of you know whatever it is that they're pushing back on and being able to look at the industry as a whole and all of the needs across the entire um, classical music community makes a, a big difference with all of those needs with with the breadth of the work that is to be done uh why do you think it's important to put a lot of energy into composers again we can talk about uh the the lack of gender equity on the podium and in, in academia in so many areas why is focusing on composers and composition so vital i think that it it puts um focus into a lot of other areas mm-hmm. um so if if we're talking about the orchestral stage and the lack of um programming specifically towards non-living women composers, then you're automatically having the conversation who's making the decisions on programming, right? And that's usually the music directors. And the music director has such an artistic oversight. And the fact that actually this just came out in the most recent League of American Orchestras report, that in the last 10 years, representation of women music directors has gone down Mm. um, across American orchestras, which is like, absolutely. uh, I I never would have actually guessed that until that number came out. And it's largely the, the larger budget orchestras, right? Because they, they move at such a glacial pace and there's so much oversight and councils and um, board conversations and all of this, but really a lot of times it comes down to that one music director making that decision, um, especially for smaller organizations, they can make changes faster and 
and do all of that, which is why representation is getting better in smaller orchestras than it is in the larger budget orchestras. Um, but I, I think the, the whole industry is at least trying more than they were. The awareness and the conversation has changed and that's where you have to start from. You know, we can <laughs> we can say that the industry is trying, you know, you you mentioned the uh, League of American Orchestra report. I also want to lift up uh, the organization Donne, who has done uh, incredible work in in documenting uh, this this issue and and putting the numbers out there. Single digit representation, you know, of of women composers in many uh, in many aspects is what we're looking at. We can say that the industry is trying, but to many people, myself included, that doesn't look like an attempt. Do you think people just don't care? We need to raise awareness? What, what, what do you think is really at the root of this issue? Um, the biggest pushback that I'm seeing, and I, I say this as an or uh, orchestral musician, um, I'm the concertmaster of National Philharmonic, so I live in that orchestral world. Um, so I take a lot of the context from, from that, but even if the music director wants to program something, you still have tenured musicians who may have been there for decades and they've gotten comfortable in their jobs. They haven't had to practice and learn new repertoire mm -hmm. for <laughs> however long. And, you know, they don't necessarily feel that creative impulse anymore. There's a stagnation that I think starts to happen when you play the same repertoire over and over again and, and nothing new is asked. And I think that what we're seeing with younger musicians, especially in higher education right now, is that they're not just starting with a different awareness, but they are pushing the conversation forward and they're making things happen right now. And I think that that's trickling in to some of the older generations and the orchestras and the, the you know, industry organizations a little bit more. Um, but it's, it, there's so many components to it, you know, to figure out, you have to look at every single orchestra individually mm -hmm. to figure out what it is. Um, and a lot of times I think that it's, even if they want to do it, they don't know how to do it. They don't know where to start or nonprofit organizations for the most part have such a, a small um, operating budget to be able to put to any new initiative and to ask their already overworked staff and overwhelmed staff members um, to try to expand on the work that they already are committed to doing is, first of all, it's not fair. They shouldn't have to. Um, but then you have to find the resource. You have to find somebody new who does know how to do it. You have to figure it out. And um, and it does take time to do that. But that's why things like Boulanger Initiative have to exist. Yeah, yeah. And, and I really do appreciate your highlighting the next generation's role in 
and all of the as as a as a famous uh, woman composer once said, I believe the children are our future. So I think <laughs> we we, we need it. to we need to look ahead in that way. And uh, so in my work with the American Composers Orchestra, I'm very proud that at this point there are multiple partner orchestras that I've engaged with who will uh, publish a call for scores with us specifically for emerging women composers. I, I really love that work. Um, but I have to admit that when a call for scores for emerging composers is completely open, the number of women composers, the number of applicants are dwarfed by the number of male applicants. It just seems like men outnumber women in the field of composition, at least when it comes to uh, living composers. I wonder how uh, the Boulanger Initiative addresses that hard data. So again, I, a lot of this is looking at who gets to make the decisions, who's on the staff and faculty at universities and conservatories and music schools. And they're the ones making the decision of who's going to be brought on as a student. Unless we change the decision makers and who actually gets to fill the student positions, the, the seats in the classrooms, mm -hmm. I don't think that that's going to change. Um, that and starting from a much younger age. For me, it was seeing myself on the podium, seeing having Joanne Folletta conduct when I was in high school and having an, an aha moment that light bulb go off of oh, I didn't realize that I could be a conductor. That's a thing. Interesting. Um, if I had had that thought when I was in fourth grade, I wonder what the difference would have been. So getting in earlier and getting into schools, we're doing a lot of early education work in the DC area. Um, we just finished our first high school residency at the end of this past school year. And these students are doing composition projects and they're getting their hands dirty and, um, you know, things like podcasting projects and research and seeing themselves in those positions and seeing themselves represented, I think, makes the biggest difference and will make the biggest difference of the number of applications that we can see in the future from women composers. How did the school age children react to your work? I know when I'm in front of uh, high schoolers, it's always sort of, yes, of course, we know we're woke, X, Y, and Z. You know, do, 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 do you experience something similar from the next yeah. generation? A lot of times. Well, and it, again, figuring out who your, your audience is, you know, you don't start with awareness with yeah. that kind of a, an audience, with that age. Um, they're having the conversations, especially at, in all girls school sure. in, you know, outside of DC in a very political environment. We know that they're aware. So it's more of getting them from the beginning to the knowledge that they can do something about it. And that they can't, it's not just that they can do something, but it's part of the obligation as a woman to stand up for other women um, and to see yourselves reflected. I wonder if you'll say more to that. You use the word obligation. I, I talk to uh, many folks who say, you know, I just want to be an artist. I, I, I didn't go into this field to be an activist, to be someone who does this sort of thing. But it sounds like you really do see it as an obligation for women to engage this work in some way. I do. I. It's not fair. 
and nobody should have to do this work. I wish that Boulanger Initiative didn't have to exist. I wish that we didn't have to say women composers all the time. Um, but we're not there yet. You know, this last study that came out from um, Institute of Composer Diversity and the League with repertoire still shows that less than 2% of orchestral programming mm. goes towards historical women composers. And I, I, that's just not even comprehensible at this. It's 2023. <laughs> so, you know, to to sit there and say that we, we're not obligated is to say that you don't have a problem with it, right? It, that's one and the same. Unless you're doing something about it, then you can't have an opinion about it. So let me ask you this. We talk a lot about what needs to be included, but we don't talk as often about what needs to be removed to make that space. What's your answer to that question? What do we need to be getting out of the way? I don't think anything needs to be removed. Um, I love Beethoven and Mozart and Haydn and, and all of the composers that we hear year after year. But do we have to do it year after year? How many times do we need to hear a Beethoven symphony in one season? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, every single Christmas having to do the Messiah. <laughs> yep. There's so many great works that we could do in addition to, not instead of. But if, I mean, you actually look at the seasons of some of these orchestras and they do the same programs every year. And of course, the argument is always going to come back to, we have to fill the seats. We have to sell the tickets. We have to meet our operating budget goals. And we're not putting any trust in the public that they have a curiosity for something that they haven't heard before. And that they trust an organization that they've gone to you've had a subscription for 10 years are you going to stop buying a subscription because you don't get to hear handles messiah this year we doubt it but to put that in their hands instead of making that decision for them mm -hmm. we're not going to know what the difference is until we try it i mean there is a whole christmas oratorio by margaret bonds but we repeat the Messiah every year. I won't get on my soapbox right now, but <laughs> but but speaking of Margaret Bonds, I wonder if you'll speak to some of the ways uh, the Boulanger Initiative has engaged some of the more intersectional aspects of working toward gender equity. So women with different abilities, BIPOC women, trans women. How how does the Boulanger Initiative engage that part of the work? First and foremost um, is with our own programming. So there was a big question about whether we would be a presenter or if this was just going to be an educational and resource um, initiative. But the whole idea behind telling people that they can do something and trying to tell them how to do it and then not showing them and doing it yourselves, um, that I think the best way that we can get that out there is by literally doing it. So we have a, an annual festival. We just had our fifth. It's called Woco Fest, short for Women Composers Festival. Um, and it's it's such a beautiful coming together of so many different demographics and backgrounds and partnerships, organizations, from largely from the D.C. region. We like to have a, a healthy amount of representation locally, um, but really bringing people from all over the country. Um, and really from different age categories, from um, different experience backgrounds, making sure that, you know, we have some great new and upcoming composers and artists and performers 
but that we also have, you can name these composers. You've already seen them in the industry. Um, and more about having that community engage with each other um, and be able to form new relationships and you know new partnerships and new projects that go on years and years into the future. That I think the the best way to do it is by showing people that it's it's really not that hard. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it makes me or people like me feel like one of the cool kids when I look at the lineup for uh, Woco and I see uh, Inti Figures Bizueta, who I know, or Brittany J. Green. I'm like, oh, wow, I, I, I know those women. I'm, I'm I'm a part of the conversation. We're doing it here. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so there there are uh, a couple of uh, specific initiatives uh, that the Boulanger Initiative has been uh, engaging. I wonder if you'll talk about uh, uh, both the Music Inclusion Hub um, and Redefining the Canon. These, these seems like two initiatives that are very specific in scope with very specific goals. Yeah, sure. Um, the Music Inclusion Hub is our newest venture. Um, we have partnered with Decomposed in Chicago and Castle of Our Skins, which is based in Boston, um, and are very, very fortunate to have received the, the Sphinx Venture Fund Award uh, for the Music Inclusion Hub this coming two years um, that it covers. And the idea behind this is to have a virtual um, hub online with educational resources which include all historically underrepresented identities um, and will have education resources for everything from kindergarten up through college age musicians. Um, And being able to do something on that scale with one organization, it's a very large organization Mm -hmm. and to try to bring together the the actual people who are boots on the ground doing the really good work um, in the industry, in education, in um, educating the next generation and putting out music and that kind of thing. Um, It was sort of this this beautiful um, coming together of these three organizations um, and kind of finding that there was overlap, but there are also very specific things that we're focusing on separately um, that, you know, once you bring them together, this music inclusion hub, this virtual center can cover so much ground. And then also uh, redefining the canon. This this is something that, uh, you know, I, I, I remember, um, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago or a year ago now, I uh, just out of curiosity looked at uh, the audition list for I forget what orchestra it was, but just seeing these same excerpts that we have been, you know, pounding into the ground year after year, generation after generation. What's what's the goal of redefining the canon and how what what are the steps toward that goal? So redefining the canon um, partners with different orchestras to help update their excerpt lists. And there's there's so many reasons to do it, but I think one of the largest is, again, as a woman, I'm way more um, excited to take an audition if I see Amy Beach on the mm-hmm. excerpt list, if I see um, Margaret Bonds and Florence Price, and you know any we women, especially historical women composers. Living composers is is a you know different thing, different sure. discussion. It's um, much more rare to see any excerpts by living 
composers. Um, and then you start talking about uh, copyright issues. So that's a different ball game. So for right now, Redefining the Canon is only focusing really on, um, on historical composers, um, but also talking about that education pipeline. As a violinist going through youth orchestra and starting to go through that audition process at such a young age, getting to undergrad and realizing that this was the main focus of getting my undergraduate performance degree was learning these excerpts inside and out, being prepared for auditions. And, you know, you get through freshman, sophomore year, you have them memorized, right? Those standard excerpts that you see on every single list. What if we can get this next undergrad students to the same point, but with Beach and with Florence Price, if they know these pieces as well as I know the, you know, Mozart 39 mm -hmm. excerpts, then we're not even talking about the same ballgame anymore um, once they're in the industry and they are professional orchestral musicians. Um, then there, there is no pushback because they already know it. It's yeah. ingrained in them from the beginning. Um, so we're essentially working with what we call excerpt foragers. And we make the process extremely easy and we give them a part for their instrument um, and a score and a link to a recording. And then the excerpt foragers can go in and say, oh, this 13 measure excerpt would be a perfect excerpt. And actually it could be a great substitute for the Midsummer Night's Dream excerpt. Mm -hmm. It has the exact same skill sets that the audition committee would be looking for. And you know, finding things that could be substituted. So when we have an orchestral partner, we look at whatever their excerpt list is currently, we could say, okay, so if you want to substitute this for this, or we have these substitutes possibly for that, and we can find out exactly what it is that orchestras want to supplement their lists with and help them make it look any way they want, essentially. Um, and then what we've started doing is building companion guides hmm. so that the audition committee isn't looking at these excerpts that they're going to listen to 400 times going, I don't know this piece. You expect me to go and, and do all of this work to listen to somebody else's audition. So we build a list of, you know, little biographical tidbits for the composers and more resources if they want to go dig in deeper and then listening links and a Spotify playlist and say, you know, this excerpt starts at second 23 mm -hmm. um, on the second track and, and that kind of thing to make it as easy as possible. And we hope that by, by doing this, um, we'll have as many orchestras from the field come together and start updating their excerpt lists to be more representative. And then we're going to start seeing the same shift on the stage. Yep, yep. I mean, I'm I'm thinking about the fact that Florence Price's first symphony starts with a bassoon solo. I mean, that would be a great excerpt for people to just know, you know, not only for the the sake of the representation, but you know, to create better musicians. If that piece of music is put on the stand, the bassoon section is going to know. Oh, I better have a good read today because you know, I I, I, I agree with you. I, I think there are uh, layers of of benefit to this sort of work. I just wonder, though, from your perspective, in the short term, is this more of a top down approach? So, do the orchestras need to list these excerpts for the conservatory teachers to spend time uh, teaching it? 
to their students? Or is it the other way around? Or is it more of a both and again, just in the short term? Both and, but we're also working with summer festivals for, you know, college age. Um, and the majority, the vast majority of excerpt foragers are younger musicians, college age students who just have a thirst for doing this work and want to become citizen artists and want to, you know, see progress made. Yeah. Again, the children are our future. Are there, uh, are there other uh, projects or uh, initiatives uh, that you like to highlight from the Boulanger Initiative? We recently uh, launched uh, the Boulanger Initiative database in March. And this is the most comfort right now. Again, it's non-living composers only. Um, but so far, it's the most comprehensive uh, database of repertoire by non-living composers. Um, and we're, you know, adding different searchable fields and all of this all the time as we go. Right now, it has close to like 11,000 works in there um, for any kind of instrumentation that you can think of. Um, but, you know, for me, having done my dissertation and research work, on specifically on on works for violin and chamber works for violin um, by women composers. If I had had a resource like this, then I could have spent so much more time actually learning music and performing music and going deeper into the lives of the composer and doing the really meaningful work instead of spending hours and hours and hours trying to hunt down every single resource. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, a way to to cut down on that time and especially for educators and students um, who, you know, especially teachers should not have to spend their own time doing this kind of work. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of resources, um, I wonder if you can speak to what financial support of uh, Boulanger Initiative goes toward. How, when, when a person contributes to Boulanger Initiative, what are they contributing to? All funds go directly to our programming and, you know, our, we're still fairly small. We have a, a quarter of a million dollar annual budget um, for this this fiscal year, ending Friday. <laughs> um, so with such a small budget and such a small team, it goes directly to putting something into a program, whether it's you know adding a, a new composer to the database or um, getting to go to a new school and do a, a program with them or having a, a virtual workshop um, next October that we haven't been able to do before. So it's, it, it goes directly to the work and, and creating something new for the industry. I'll be sure to um, have uh, information about how people can contribute to those programs uh, in the in the description of this. Uh, but I wanted to close by sort of returning uh, to a topic we touched on uh, a little uh, earlier. We can, you know, build the programs, we can create the initiatives, but at the end of the day, there are always gatekeepers. There are always people with the yes or the no power. From your perspective, I wonder who you see as the biggest gatekeepers? Who are the individuals who, you know, the field should really be applying pressure to? Is it conductors? Is it conservatory teachers? Is it arts administrators like me? Who, who do you see as the ultimate key holders? I think um, music directors is, is one of the biggest ones. But again, it goes back to every single person on the stage. Um, and you know, if if we can't change the awareness and the want for change from the entire orchestra, 
um, then the enthusiasm for playing the music that makes the difference, that gets to the audience when we're performing, isn't going to reach them. And we have to love what we're playing and want to be playing it to have that enthusiasm get into every person in, in the space, in the audience, and in the orchestra. And yes, the decisions come from above, um, but it takes the work of, of everyone to get that into the music hall and, um, and really change not just who's playing it, but who's listening to it um, and who's represented on, on every side. Stop pretending Stop pretending Stop pretending Stop pretending Do it in reality a little bit there of a tune uh, by Pamela Z called Echo Location. Pamela Z is a force in the world of creative music today. If you don't know her, you really should. But uh, I wanted to put a bow on my conversation with Laura with that tune uh, because the lyric that you heard there, Stop Pretending, was really speaking <laughs> to my spirit. Um, as you heard there, Laura considers the work of platform and women composers something that's all of our work. And we have to stop pretending that putting this work in other people's hands is going to result in something worthwhile at the end of the day. We've been here before. We've existed in a white male-dominated class classical music ecosystem for generations. They didn't change that, but we can. So let's stop pretending that this is someone else's work. Do what you can for a woman composer today, even if that's just giving a living, breathing woman composer a spin on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever. We got to do what we can. So uh, shout out to the Boulanger Initiative for reminding us of that so often uh, and doing the great work of supporting women and gender marginalized composers. Shout out to Laura Colgate and huge thanks for being here on Triloquy. All right. So for this week's Triloquy, before I start, I want to state <laughs> that this information is sensitive enough for me not to be extremely specific, but it's something that I want to uh, put on your radars, especially those of you who are composers who have or who have composers in your lives. So in my work with ACO, I manage a, a program that offers money to women and non-binary composers to write new music to be premiered by professional orchestras across the country. Now, oftentimes, one of the biggest challenges with getting an orchestra to commission new music is cost. Composers want a fair amount of money to write music as they should, uh, but budget is often what makes or breaks a commission when you consider musician costs and having the venue, the lights, the ticket people, the ushers, you know. So, you know, it's money always plays a big deal in this. But again, the program that I'm helping manage uh, takes the money part out of it. But if you can believe it, it's not so easy still to get some orchestras to commit to new music. When I think about new music and efforts to sideline Beethoven and Brahms and all those people, uh, for the sake of music makers who can actually benefit from these performances, from the ticket sales. Uh, I think about the nuts and bolts of things, budget, scheduling, contracts for recording, all sorts of stuff. Uh, and I'll admit that these things taken care of can be a lot. The things that, you know, make or break an opportunity for a composer trying to make it, you know, in addition to the money, 
you know, falls when certain logistics can't be put together. But at the end of the day, you know, that's there are a lot of variables. But, you know, what I'm getting to is that at the end of the day, the yes or the no behind a new music commission, behind a living composer getting a little paycheck is no more than that. Just a simple decision. It's been frustrating me a little bit to, you know, come to an orchestra with everything but a fruit basket in hand when trying to uh, give them the opportunity to support an emerging composer. And the answer is no. Uh, I'll speak plainly here as much as I can. I can't even pay some orchestras to support music by living, breathing women. So what does this mean to you when you hear me say that? What does that mean? I could talk about which orchestras I'm thinking about in particular, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because that's not as important as the status quo. If you just look at most orchestras rosters, you will see, you know, things that are more or less the way things have been for a long time. So what does this mean largely for me? I think it means that we got to put more pressure on more people. Uh, after I cut off the mic when I was speaking with Laura there, uh, we talked a little bit about who are the actual gatekeepers. And more and more, I'm discovering that it's all of our work. Just as she said at the end of our dialogue, is orchestral musicians across the country, you know, that could say no to status quo programming in orchestras. I believe things would change with that sort of collective action. With some head roles, heads roll maybe, uh, would some people potentially be out of a job for challenging administration so heavily? That certainly could happen. But should that just be the end of the story? Should musicians, arts administrators, everyone, uh, conductors just accept the status quo from whoever we're getting it from um, and just do that? Just do it like that as it's always been? My answer is no. And I do acknowledge the privilege, you know, from which that opinion comes, you know, you know, my, my livelihood does not rely on playing the bassoon or working with a traditional orchestra. So, you know, maybe it can seem like armchair quarterback in, in many ways, but that's just my vision. This sort of collective action and education and understanding is what it really takes that to, to decolonize classical music. And it's not just for the sake of it. Think about all of the composers that would have some income, the, the impact on communities. If we think about doing this equitably with uh, diversity at, at the front, you know, for every performance that happens in a concert hall, that is money. That is opportunity. Those are resources that could be going to someone. And we have to think about what we're going to do. Um, these are, you know, questions there that I hope you'll spend some time chewing on this week. Even if you don't work in the orchestral field, apply that to whatever field you work in, you know, press a little harder and understand that none of us are sitting on the sideline. We're playing for team A or, or, or team B. Um, we're all actively participating in one side or another. And, uh, I know what side I want to participate on. So hopefully we agree there. Thanks as always for listening to me ramble here each and every week. Apologies uh, for the sound of the city. If you heard any of that again, I'm uh, in New York. I uh, haven't gotten the studio or anything set up and the permanent move has to happen yet, but we're getting there. So thanks so much for uh, sticking with me as I transition into the big city. And I hope uh, that y'all will tune in next week. I will talk to y'all then. Stay dangerous. Stay dangerous.